Welcome to our last Tuesday of the month book discussion. Just a couple of librarians talking about books we think others might enjoy. November's read is The Anthropocene Reviewed by John Green. Spoiler alert, we usually end up discussing endings and key plot points. I'm Amy, and joining me today is Marta, Adult Programming and Volunteer Coordinator at Hiawatha Public Library. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So for our listeners who may just need a refresher, maybe it's been a minute since you've read it, this book is a memoir that very purposefully puts our subject, John Green, in context with culture and humanity. This may seem like a really dumb summary, (laughs) and I definitely could have done better, but I think when you read it and when you hear us talking about it, you'll kind of get what I'm trying to convey with that summary. Okay, so initial thoughts, Marta. Oh my gosh, I... (laughs) loved this book. So I highly recommend it. If you have not read it, if you've read John Green's other books, like The Fault in Our Stars, Looking for Alaska, and Abundance of Catherine's, I think at first I was a little shy and thinking, no, I don't know if I want to read it. I really like John Green as being a young adult author. I'm just going to keep him there. So when I saw that this book was coming out, and then I saw that it was adult nonfiction, I'm like, I'm not going to do it. So thank you, Amy, for making me pick up this book and read it. I loved it. I thought it was phenomenal. I wanted to mark up my copy. Technically, it was the library's copy. So I didn't want to mark up the library's <laughs> copy. But I did want to highlight so much of this book because there's so many good quotes. There's a lot of huh moments. It's really great. So I really enjoyed it. And thank you again, Amy, for inviting me here to talk about it and making me read it. Because I don't know if I would have read it if I hadn't been made to read it. Yes. Podcast, so thank you. Yeah. Well, so big twist. This is the very first John Green book I've ever read. You're going to love his other ones. They're great. <laughs> and I read Hank Green's kind of duo two-part series, I guess, that he wrote for adult fiction. But this was my first John Green book. I had read, like I said, Hank Green, and I had listened to and watched like some of their stuff on YouTube and whatnot. And like, I just really find them fun and interesting. And so I was like, you know, sometimes I feel like I should read him anyway. And, you know, this will be a good intro, like short pieces of fiction slash nonfiction. This will be good. Little short stories that I can chop up if needed and not spend, you know, hours and hours on. Joke was on me. I like binged read this book. <laughs> it was so good. <laughs> and it was really easy to read. This was wonderful in his style, which is very much like candid and approachable, I felt like. So I really enjoyed that piece of it. And he makes the science and the environmental impact stuff, really easy to kind of comprehend too. I agree with that. There was one thing he was talking about how somebody explained something to him. I bet I didn't mark it down, but it was in the essay where he was talking about decathlon. Oh yeah. And I think it was in that section, or maybe it was in the section that he talked about the SATs, but it was about something that was explained to him as like a teenager about a principle that he didn't understand. And now I'm going to have to see if I can find it. But it was just amazing. I was like, this makes so much sense. Also, I feel less guilty about my obsession with Dr. Pepper. Oh, I know. (laughs) It's so good. I think that's when I started this book too. I'm like, okay, essays. And I do read nonfiction books. 
But some nonfiction books take you a really long time to read because there's so much information and you kind of have to take some time to process that information. So, yeah, like you said, Amy, he makes it very relatable and they're short little essays. You could read one and then go about your day. And then just so many like good quotes, some aha moments of like how he learned things and then how he relates things to people too. You stop and you think about it and how it relates to your life. And he just makes, again, just so many things relatable to you. So when you first start reading this book, I always start with the introduction and then any kind of things at the beginning of the book, because I like to get that background history on either the author's thoughts or what they were thinking about when they write a book. So I always start with the introduction. I know sometimes people go right to chapter one. I highly recommend starting with that first introduction. You'll see throughout the book, too, he rates the essays. So he gives them a one through five star rating. And one of the quotes that kind of stopped me in my tracks, too, is the five star scale doesn't really exist for humans. It exists for data aggregation systems, which is why it did not become standard until the Internet era. And I'm older. And so I remember a time before the Internet. But it's funny how, like, I haven't really considered that, too, of, like, Oh, five stars scale. Like I look at that now in my day to day, like I look at five stars, like even on Goodreads, if you keep track of the books you read, I look at that star rating of like, oh, is this a worthy book? Should I spend time reading this book? Or like in the things that I buy, oh, did that get a good review? So it was so interesting to think like, oh, we haven't had that since the beginning of the internet. Like it's so interesting how like we connect things with that rating system now of like, would we stay at that hotel or would we go to that theme park? Would we visit that library? Hopefully all the libraries have five-star ratings. So, but that was a big thing for me that made me stop and think about like, oh my gosh, I hadn't even considered that. So as you're reading these essays at the end, he'll say, I give that a one-star rating. I give that a two-star rating. And it's really interesting too, if I were reading like a giant ball of paint, would I give that a five star or a four star rating? Or like if you've been to kind of the, like I'm thinking of Iowa, if you've seen like the giant strawberry and strawberry point, or if you've seen the giant skillet and Brandon, Iowa, what would you rate that? And it's pretty amazing. Also, there's the world's biggest Cheeto used to be in Algona, Iowa. I have yeah. to go see that. So I have actually seen it. It's in this local restaurant. I don't really quite remember why it's in this local restaurant, but like this restaurant has been there for a very long time. Like it's kind of a staple in Algona, Iowa. And it's just sitting on a little cushion under this like plastic acrylic cover. And- this down. I have to go. <laughs> Cheeto. It's pretty funny. But yeah, so as we're talking about like how he explains things and relates things to the outside world. Mm -hmm. So I found that quote that is in definitely the chapter about academic decathlon. So he's talking about how he didn't understand the concept of marginal utility. So this is how his friend explained it to him. Look, you drink one Zima and you feel good. You drink two and you feel better, but the added benefit is smaller than between zero and one. And I was just like, oh my God, <laughs> explain that with alcohol. Is it like, <laughs> it's just so good. <laughs> yeah. And he goes back and references Zima a little bit later too. And so it's kind of a fun throwback, but yeah, like those are just some really concrete examples of how he makes this a lighthearted read. And then there are times where he just like, 
gut checks you with something and you're like bawling in your car as you're waiting for a library program to start. Not that that actually happened to me <laughs> or anything. Oh, good. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. There was one of the times that I definitely giggled was the Canadian geese. There's an essay on that, which I happen to love that there's an essay on Canadian geese. The imagery he uses too, when he says they're singing their voice is like a song of a dying balloon. And you could just visualize it, you can hear it. Everybody's probably like, oh yeah, that makes sense. But when he talks about Canadian geese, it's so crazy because like he kind of talks about their history. They were dying out. We stopped hunting them. So they brought them back. And now you see them everywhere, which is great for this species. But then I know that some people have had bad experiences with them too. They bring that dying balloon after you, especially if you're biking. And they come after you and you're like, whoa, it's all going to work out. But I'm a little intimidated by this big bird that's coming after me. But that's the kind of imagery, too, that he uses in his writings, too. So, again, I love that relatability that he's using the imagery. There's a lot of humor, too. So it's a good time. Yes, definitely. And he definitely, specifically with the Canada Goose section, because I feel like we've all had, or most of us, have probably had interaction with Canadian geese because they are so prolific, I guess. They're just kind of everywhere now. So yeah, it definitely brought me back to like specific instances of my childhood and when I was being a little bit of a rambunctious child. And oh, scratch and sniff stickers. Oh yeah. Like the way that scratch and sniff stickers work, like I never thought to look that up or like, I don't know if that's been an episode on how things work or whatever, but like That was one of my favorite nostalgia chapters, I think, was the scratch and sniff stickers, where I also learned stuff. I can see them. I can remember how they smell, too. And I think of, like, other things kind of from childhood of, like, those scratch and sniff markers, too, and how those smell and if they still work. But I love that he had a collection of them. He has a binder of his scratch and sniff stickers. And they still have a smell, which is phenomenal. Yes. (laughs) I love that they haven't gotten rid of their smell. I guess the, you know, your olfactory sensory, you can remember things by smell and it takes him back to his childhood and collecting those too. So yeah, it just kind of made me think of like, oh, what would be a smell that I would think of that would take me back or like triggers those past memories too. Exactly. And because smell is such a strong memory inducing, I feel like that will easily trigger those things. I also really appreciated a little bit of history he gives us because the process that scratch and sniff stickers are created by, I guess, is called microencapsulation, which was actually originally developed for carbonless copy paper. And I was like, what? Like who takes that same process and applies it to copy paper and then scratch and sniff stickers? I want to know more about that. That seems fascinating to me. I agree with that too of like, (laughs) How do you get from one thing to another? Yeah. And again, I was taking notes while I was reading this book because I'm like, I want to make sure I would look that up. I want to watch that. I want to do that or, you know, different things too. So if you like to try new things or learn more, definitely read the book as well. Yes. It'll definitely spur some new tracks of your brain. So I was curious if you had a least favorite essay out of the collection. Oh, no. I don't think I did, actually. I have to say, like, there are definitely some that blew my mind way more than others. 
I just turned to the plague, but I don't think about that. <laughs> that was really informative too. Even wintry mix, like I could picture that, you know, living in the Midwest and he lives in Indianapolis. So like that was so relatable too, of like, yeah, there's a wintry mix. And he has a lot of footnotes too. So if he has like little tidbits of information. He has a great footnote explaining more about either a word that he's used or about the topic too. So then he gives some great notes at the end of the book, but there's so many good ones. I don't think I had a least favorite one, but as I look back on it and I can appreciate it in its full scope of what he has given us in this book, I can see that it was an important one to have in there. But at the time I was kind of like, oh, this is kind of just corny. It didn't at the time feel like it had a broader purpose in the collection, but looking back on it, I do see its validity. So I want to preface it with saying that, but that Sunsets essay, it just felt on my first reading like, oh, I don't know if that needed to be in here, but he quotes some really wonderful people, Toni Morrison, and the concept he's trying to kind of pull out is really about vulnerability and making yourself vulnerable to people in the world in general, I think was really important to have in here. My cynic little brain was just kind of like, <laughs> oh, that wasn't necessary, <laughs> but I love it. it was, <laughs> was kind of shorter of an essay too, wasn't it? Kind of just a few pages. So yeah, you are right. It probably could have not have been included. And then there are definitely some that I wanted like more to yeah. as well. So I can see that. I think one that is kind of now kind of coming up to is the one on, is it Sycamore Trees? The chapter on that. And that I felt like could have been bigger or something more probably could have happened because I think he was trying to take time out to like look at trees and how many opportunities you get to do that. And I'm, I think I kept questioning like, how does this tie in with a sycamore tree? Or why did you bring up the sycamore trees? But I mean, he tied it in fine, but I think that one would have been the only one that I could have been like, oh, give me a little bit more to it. But it was totally good too. So. I was also just really impressed overall with the way he built out the collection. Like, I'm just fascinated with how stories tie in together and how you create a theme out of like so many stories that have, you know, smaller themes within themselves. And as always, you know, he did a wonderful job with that piece. Yeah. So I was super impressed by that in general. And I also had a thought as I was thinking about this this morning. I think I also probably would have had a much stronger reaction if I had read this in 2021 versus now. <laughs> I think that there are things about this that probably would have spoken to me on a deeper level in 2021 than they do right now. And I think that that's true for a lot of books at different points in our lives, right? But that definitely just hit me as I was thinking about it this morning and thinking about some of the very specific essays where he talks about this time, I think is how he refers to it. Yeah. And I like that he referred to, you might be reading this during this time of the pandemic, or it could be years from now and you won't even know, it could be so different. You might not even know what the pandemic was like if you're so far removed from it too. So that was really interesting as well of like, oh yeah, well, we can still relate because we all experienced it. But as generations to come, if they come back to this book, they might be like, oh, what is he talking about with this time? Or they might have to go back and preface, oh, it's COVID-19 and this is what people experienced it. But then they won't know what those experiences are like either because they haven't experienced it. 
very philosophical. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and it's kind of interesting to think, because I know this was talked about in 2020 and 2021. Like I remember hearing, you know, news broadcasts and things about how this particular pandemic will be viewed in media and in cultural things like books and movies in the future. And what does that look like in the future? And when can we start unpacking that even though that that's constantly happening, that unpacking and that coping and things is constantly happening. But, and then we look back on like previous examples of how authors have approached pandemics and from the past and stuff. So although this one feels very different, I'm sure they all felt very different just because of the amount of technology and things that we have access to and recording of all these experiences. So, yeah. yeah. Well, after that, sad, depressing thought. I also found out recently, which I wish I would have known this sooner before I maybe even read the book. So if folks, if you haven't read it yet, maybe consider. (laughs) Don't stop here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm just like the podcast. Apparently there was a podcast for this book for the first year that it was out. And I didn't know Um, that either. Yeah, Yeah. or like the year before. So about a year ago, the most recent episode was like recorded and stuff. It's titled The Anthropocene Reviewed, I think is the title of the podcast even. So I am probably going to go back and see if I can find a couple of episodes just to listen to, to see what that's like, because that has me really curious now too. And I wonder if he'll be doing some of the essays that he did from his book or if he'll be even different topics too. Like, yeah, it could expand on that too. So maybe he'll expand on the sunsets and we'll get some more depth to it that we can be like, oh, this is a great chapter. Yes. <laughs> yes. Else. But yeah, I had no idea there was a podcast either. So I love a good podcast suggestion. So I'm definitely going to check it out as well because again, the relatableness of his writing and his imagery and just the ease and flow of it, that it just makes me want to check out the podcast because it's so easy to read that it seems like I can relate to a lot of what he's saying as well. And his voice is just easy to listen to. He's got like, there are some authors who probably shouldn't narrate their books. He does a good job because I did listen to part of this as well. I read half and then I like listened to the second half because I had to turn my book back in. Yeah. (laughs) But I have to ask because we're librarians and maybe you don't have this experience, but I do as a librarian, Googling strangers. Yep. I I was like, that's not that bad. I didn't think that was that bad. (laughs) When I have to work in programming too, and Amy, I'm sure you experience this too. Before I meet a presenter, I like to know kind of like who I'm meeting and possibly like what they look like. So I don't go and say, hi, I'm Marta, like, you know, not the person I'm meeting with at all. So I didn't think that was that bad. I thought it was normal. (laughs) But yeah, we use Google a lot here too, because sometimes, you know, just some of the basic questions that we get asked as librarians, you know, we get asked phone numbers, directions. So we do use Google a lot. It's been our search engine to go to. So I related to that. How about you, Amy? Absolutely. First off, on a personal level, yes. But mostly like, yeah, I was thinking of this as when I get questions for people who are like trying to track down like their high school friend and they know their first name and, you know, what their maiden name was and about how old they are. And maybe like they live in Iowa still. And that's always fascinating to go through, especially because white pages will give you only so much. And so you'll eventually go down a rabbit hole, which is always fun. But yeah, I 
just found that really fun, especially because he starts out the essay with this wonderful sentence. (laughs) And it's just very simple. Okay, I'm going to read it. When I was a kid, my mother often told me that everyone has a gift inside them. I don't know why, but I just think it's because of the title right above it just says Googling Strangers. That brought some joy out of my day. Like that was wonderful. And that's kind of one of those chapters where he also talks about some of his anxieties and whatnot too. And so I found that like highly relatable as well. And it was just a very fun chapter that kind of like got thrown in there that I really appreciated. Yeah, it was so good. And I can see myself doing it too, which is also so again, very relatable. Yes. Um, Although he does also throw in that chapter, I think, some discussions that are very sad. And I forgot about this as soon as I said, it's a fun chapter because this is something I also did not know. I learned a lot about John Green that he used to work in a children's hospital when he was studying to join the clergy. I think so. Yeah. So he works at a children's hospital and there's a very sad story that's kind of in there as well, but also happy. Right. But that was also definitely one of the chapters that and the one where he was talking about his friend who had cancer and all of that. And I was just like, oh my gosh. Okay. So you get your mix of sad, ridiculously fun and happy. And overall, it was just a very well-rounded read. Yeah. You had some activism in there too, and facts about global warming. And it was great. I actually expected it to be more about like science and climate change and things like that. So I was a little surprised about that, but not like disappointed. Instead, there's Dr. Pepper and... (laughs) And outlying sign and why we sing that and home being in Indianapolis. And oh my gosh, there are so many good things, but yes. Well, I think that about wraps up what we have time, unless you have some last minute things you have to get off your chest. Marta. I do actually. So <laughs> okay. there's a chapter near the end. He It's called New Partner. It's a song. And it made me really think because he listens to this song. He's been listening through his like teen years, his adult life and like it's one of his most favorite songs. I wanted our listeners and Amy as well to think about a song that is like your go-to song. If you have a song or like a group of people, and I know this is like putting you on the spot too, because you haven't had time to think about it, but like a song that like takes you back, like brings up road trips or moving or college, or if it's your go-to song, if you're sad, or if you're going through a breakup or whatever. So I don't know. I kept trying to think through of like what my song would be too. And that's still one that I'm like, what would my song be? Because there's definitely like artists that I go to. If I need to be lifted up or just like, oh, I'm angry. I'm just going to listen to this band or whatever. Yeah. So I wondered, Amy, if you have an artist or a song that you listen to. I don't have like a go-to for all occasions type of song, but I can definitely self-identify like when I'm really feeling angsty or whatever, Linkin Park is usually my go-to band. Oh, that's so good. So, because that. that takes me back to like middle school, high school era where yeah. like I was an angsty child and <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. an angsty time for a lot of people. So my first name is Amy and There was a song that my mom used to sing to me all the time. And it was, okay, it's just called Amy, I guess, by Pure Prairie League. And it came out in the early 70s. So it was like written 10 years before I was born or something like that. But my mom used to sing that to me all the time. And so when it comes on the radio, it just immediately takes me back to like my mom goofing off with me, singing to me as a kid. Good fond memories type of situation. 
Oh, I love that. Yeah. And then I think for me, so my mom, she didn't listen to much music, but what we did listen to was Everly Brothers. But anytime I hear them, I have to stop what I'm doing. And it's like, oh, because road trips like out to Colorado or other places like that was one like cassette tape. I'm going to put it out there, cassette tape, (laughs) but that she would put on and we would listen to Everly Brothers. And so I always think of like just before computers, before iPads, I think we had CDs by then, but we still use cassette tapes, but we had the Everly Brothers. So if you do not know who the Everly Brothers are, you should look them up, <laughs> listen to a few of them. They're just very soothing. But yeah, I think that's definitely for my go-to as well. But oh gosh. That's awesome. That's a great question. Yeah, it's a pretty good one. So I have more questions too, but I don't want to take up your time. <laughs> okay. So there's a chapter called Indianapolis. And so he used to live in New York City, I believe. And he moved to Indianapolis because his wife, Sarah, got a job there at the Museum of Art, I believe. And there is a quote. So he talks about Indianapolis. And if you live in Iowa, you kind of get the question too of like, why do you live in Iowa? Or what is there to do there? (laughs) So there's a quote in there. And he says, home is before and you live in after. So kind of think about that. Home is before. So people think like, where is home to you? Home is before and you live in after. But home is also where you are building and maintaining today. So my question was, what does home mean to you? Yikes. Yeah. (laughs) I've thought about this before, actually. So it's definitely more of a comforting, like, I cannot worry about these outside stressors or something in my life. So generally, it is both a place and people. So it's probably more often than not the second home that I was raised in as a kid. And, you know, just like being in the living room with like my childhood dog laying at my feet, kind of like on the couch reading a book. That is like quintessential home, I guess. Yeah. I love Um, that. Did you have a home picked out? So as an adult, people ask you, where are you from? And I always say Mount Pleasant, Iowa. But then like you only live there until like you're 18, you know, sometimes a little longer, you know, you go to college, you move away, you experience different things. And then so I keep trying to think like, where's home? And I'm like, well, I should say Cedar Rapids, Iowa. <laughs> but then like if you dig about it, think about it deeper, like you you were mentioning your home, you're growing up, your dog is there at your feet and it's just that comfort And you're around people that you love and trust. So I keep thinking like, oh, I'll feel home. I'll be able to experience that. But it just has so many different like meanings. And I'm probably getting too much into philosophy. What is home? How do we define home? I don't know. You guys can be like, no. (laughs) But it is so interesting that I've always thought like, oh, I'll feel it when I feel home. And But home could be so many things. Like it could be when you're going out with your friends, that could be home because that's your group of people that you trust and love and care for. It could just be like at the library, that could be your home. You know, you have your everyday visitors. So this is a kind of home to them too. So it's, it is definitely a question I keep asking, like, what is home? I live in Cedar Rapids. That's home. (laughs) And it is really funny. His, that chapter on Indianapolis and people are like, what do you do here? You know, what brought you here? And like, he's like, I'm just going to live in my environment and this is home. And, you know, to me, even though it could be more exciting, people are like, what do you do in Iowa for fun? And it's like, well, I do this. I swear I have more fun. 
it just doesn't look as exciting on paper, but it's a lot of fun too. Like there's so much to do with it. So it's a question to keep thinking about, but yeah. And it definitely changes too, I feel like. Yeah. Because yeah, there are definitely days where I'm like, okay, home is definitely the house I live in now mm-hmm. with the people and the animals that I have there. But then there are times mm-hmm. where it's like, even that becomes overwhelming and you're like, okay, let's just go back to being 13, 14 at home. <laughs> and then you're yeah. like, wait, I don't actually want to be 13, 14 again. But like yeah. having that feeling of like no responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I know. I keep, I keep thinking that too. Like, oh man. Oh gosh, adulthood is hard. So basically, we're telling you that you should all read Read this and find (laughs) your favorite four and then share it with us because I, for one, would love to know what people think about this book and get all the insights from everybody. Well, thank you for joining us. If folks have enjoyed the Anthropocene Reviewed and you're looking for more books, you may want to try. My number one recommendation would be Reasons to Stay Alive by Matt Haig. It also has kind of a hope-filled type of theme running through it. And John Green just read very hopeful to me. I know this is only my first reading of him, (laughs) but I feel like I got that vibe pretty much throughout this book. So I definitely would recommend that. He talks about his fellow author and his friend in the book too. And so I actually looked her up and we have a bunch of her children's books in our library. I've read a few of them too, but I'm not sure if it's Krause or Krause Rosenthal. And I'm interested to read more of her books because his close relationship with her. So the one book that stood out to me is Encyclopedia of an Ordinary Life. And that is by Amy, it's K-R-O-U-S-E, Rosenthal. The other suggestion, it's not a book, but it's a movie. He talks about a time where he was feeling down and he had anxiety and some depression. And he had a colleague that told him, to watch the movie Harvey. I think it's a black and white film. So I wrote that down too, of like, watch the movie Harvey. And I haven't watched many black and white films, but I will definitely check it out too, because it seemed like it was a good opportunity for him to do. And he had a good suggestion too from his boss to watch it. So yeah. Awesome. Thank you for sharing those. Folks, I'll be back in December with Emily from North Liberty Library to discuss Ring Shout by P. DeJelly Clark. I hope you'll join us again. Yeah, thank you.